Good morning. My name is Alfred Walking Bowl, and I greet you with a good heart. Um, it is a practice in Lakota culture um, to ask forgiveness of our elders in any group before speaking in front of them. We do so because we know we have not lived as long as you. Um, we do not have your wisdom, and so we ask your forgiveness for speaking so boldly, or more practically, expressing ideas that you may have heard over time and again and are just too polite to correct us on. <laughs> In my professional life, I'm the communications manager for PFUND Foundation, the regional community foundation serving the lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer, intersex, two-spirit, and allied communities in the upper Midwest states of Minnesota, Iowa, North Dakota, South Dakota, and Wisconsin. Made it. Um, <laughs> we invest in bold leaders so that LGBTQ communities can thrive. Uh, simply put, we raise money and we give it away to queer individuals in our region to support their work and their development as leaders. We have three elevated priorities, LGBTQ people of color, transgender and gender non-conforming communities, and LGBTQ North Dakotans and South Dakotans. We invest in these communities as a priority because as a community foundation, we know that when we make strategic investments in marginalized folks, that leads to better outcomes for everybody. It's an honor to work in this cross-section of communities and identities. Every day I wake up grateful in the knowledge that because of where I have been and where I am now, I have the honor of connecting my communities with the resources that they need to grow and to thrive. It's pretty good work if you can get it. I'd like to thank Jim uh, for asking me to speak today. Our history goes back years to when I was a student journalist in South Dakota, looking at internship opportunities here in Minneapolis while he was at the Star Tribune. Um, our connection was renewed when I moved here about five years ago and met his partner, Ralph Wyman. Where's Ralph? Say hello, Ralph. Hi. <laughs> um, who serves as PFUND Foundation's treasurer on the board of directors. Um, it never ceases to amaze and humble me when people ask me to speak because in my mind, I'm still a kid who is bumbling and rambling in the world. Um, and I occasionally come up with an insight that's worth sharing on Facebook. And when other people find resonance with it, I get a little worried. <laughs> um, I get mostly worried because then everyone will expect profundity on a regular basis and I just can't <laughs> deliver that. Um, but the great thing about social media is that um, it's a place that can give us encouragement uh, when we need it most. So today as we gather, um, I call to mind the world around us. Um, it's a difficult time for a lot of us on the margins of society. Beyond the current political climate and condition, there has been building this societal contraction to progress. Like any animate being, the sense of societal contraction happens quickly after forward momentum. If you're a pessimist, you think of it as one step forward, two steps back. If you're an eternal optimist like me, you think of it as two steps forward and one step back. Our brother Bayard Rustin had similar thoughts on this in his correspondence to a professor at Wayne State University in 1969. In his letter he wrote, I am 59 years old. I am black and I have lived with and fought racism my entire life. 
I have been in prison 23 times, serving 28 months in a federal penitentiary and 30 days on a North Carolina chain gang, among other punishments. I have seen periods of progress followed by reaction. I have seen the hopes and aspirations of Negroes rise during World War II only to be smashed during the Eisenhower years. I am seeing the victories of the Kennedy and Johnson administrations destroyed by Richard Nixon. Today, we are witnessing again that rise and that tiring song and dance of push and pull of human cognitive dissonance. For the elders in this place, I'm sure it's a familiar and frightening at the same time. The pulling backward of American society is so openly racist, so openly and unapologetically misogynist, so openly and unapologetically xenophobic. It's without conscience and lately seemingly without unchecked power. The limits of our civic institutions feel like they're at a breaking point. So what is it that sustains those of us on the margins of society in these times? How do we renew ourselves every day when every day is replete with a stream of awful decisions, hateful rhetoric, and incitement of violence against those pushing forward still? For his part, Bayard reminds us all that it is simple. We must hold tightly to our humanity to guide us. He continued, I have been in a bomb church my best friends, closest associates, and colleagues in arms have been beaten and assassinated. Yet to remain human and to fill my, fulfill my commitment to a just society, I must continue to fight for the liberation of all. There will be times when each one of us will have doubts, but I trust that neither of us will desert our great cause. As a person of faith, I've had to lean on what it is I hold most dear in these times. Now, when I say faith, I don't mean simply a monotheistic God with smells and bells and whistles and brocaded robes. When I say faith, I mean the trust each one of us gives each day to the world around us that we believe that it is for us and not against us. That is what I mean when I say faith. One of my other identities is as a person in recovery from alcoholism and addiction. My story is not unlike any other alcoholic or addict. It's filled with moments of humility, moments of trial, and moments of joy. What I've learned in my program of recovery is that a faith in a higher power doesn't mean an Abrahamic God or even a supernatural deity. Faith is the trust that what got me from where I was to where I am now will get me to where I need to be. And so too for all of us, whether it's our profession, whether it's our place in society, our unearned privilege, our earned privilege, our gifts, our talents, our experiences. These are all things that signify the trust that we've put into this animate being we perceive as human society. What got us from where we were to where we are now will get us to where we need to be. And while we live in a society here in Minneapolis where people are generally free to identify how they feel most fits with their authentic selves, I'll still get an occasional raised eyebrow when I identify as a practicing Catholic. Please don't tell the folks down the street that I'm here today. <laughs> 
I kid, it doesn't matter, they don't care. <laughs> um, for the most part, it's a simple matter of identity, like being left-handed or six foot three, it simply is. But for some folks who hear this part of my identity, the pushback is strong, and rightly so. The Catholic Church is responsible for the genocide and colonization and subjugation of many indigenous nations. The Catholic Church has used its position time and again to reinforce secular injustices in the name of apostolic supremacy and dogmatic authoritarianism. The Catholic Church has continued not just to debate the merit of lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer, and intersex lives, but to pull us, put us into a box where we're encouraged to deny our full selves as God's creation. For indigenous folks, even within my family, I've heard time and again that I'm colonized, that I suffer from Stockholm Syndrome, or worse yet, that I'm a collaborator plotting to take part in the continued destruction of my people. For LGBTQ folks, the response is a little more tempered. Um, they ask simply, wouldn't you feel more at home in an Episcopal or Lutheran church? <laughs> and they're not wrong. Um, I was actually raised Episcopalian. Um, I was baptized Catholic and raised Episcopalian. And to all of these, um, I can only recount the circumstances of my birth as my mother told me time and again. She'd tell me, I knew that you were coming, but your dad was gone out working, so I had to drive myself to the hospital. And they told me that you were in trouble. You had your umbilical cord wrapped around your neck, you had meconium poisoning, and you were coming out breech. That's how, it's, that's how my life started. <laughs> I, should, I should say at this point, um, the healthcare on the reservation in 1982 was such that what these would ordinarily have been minor birth complications required an emergency flight to the nearest large hospital about 220 miles away. And depending on who told the story, I spent either the first three or the first six months of my life in an incubator. So after that point, my mother made a decision to have me baptized into the Catholic Church. In terms of how I view the practice of things today, I'm probably a borderline heretic. <laughs> my opinions on Christian religious matters are what my arch-conservative Catholic cousin likes to call moral relativism. And it's a tricky place to be um, because what I consider moral, like not separating parents from their children and putting the children in cages, or celebrating the practice of the autonomy of women to control their bodies as freely as men do, or recognizing the inherent dignity of black and brown lives and bodies and our right to live free from the fear of death by the state, these moralities are negotiable for people like my cousin. But what remains is that I was baptized into a faith that I don't always agree with. But it taught me how to live justly and practically among my fellow humans. When I came out during my confirmation process in college, I feared the worst. I had done the research. I knew what the catechism said about queer folk, that we are to be respected, but we are called to lives of chastity and celibacy, um, the impossible attempt and task of removing ourselves from full personhood and love. The Benedictine brother who I was working with sat back in his chair, took a deep breath and said, so that's the way God made you. 
what else do you have? And it was a revelation and a joy to hear and to internalize. What I had come to know about the church that was chosen for me was turned upside down. From that point on, I knew my religious home was one of justice, love, and empowerment. But even deeper still, at the core of how I practice my Christian faith is a promise. I think back to my mother. Her name um, is Intgala Oyatewi, Bird Nation woman. Her English name is Lorraine Ironshell Walking Bull. And this summer marks the fourth year since she's transitioned from this world to whatever lies ahead. Along with my father, Ralph Walking Bull, who passed away a decade ago, she is a foundation of how I guide my life in this world. She was a woman who had survived the Catholic boarding school, a woman who admitted her powerlessness over alcohol and found a solution in the fellowships of Alcoholics Anonymous for the last 33 years of her life. She was a woman who had been shot at by her own people, stood up to bullies, and wore proudly her indigenous traditional identity. But in times of crisis, she would pull out her bundle of sage and smudge herself, and then take out her rosary and quietly recite the prayers that she had been taught. Then she could do anything. She was resilience incarnate in so many ways. She was loved by her children, her grandchildren, her nieces and her nephews, and feared by fools who didn't know any better until it was too late. <laughs> I also think back to my grandmother, Susan Standing Bull Ironshell. She was a woman who was born into a newly created world of fences and men in uniforms with guns dictating her life. She was a woman whose parents and grandparents had known the freedoms of religion, the freedoms of movement, and the freedoms of self-determination until the creation of the reservation. A woman who was rooted in her culture but had to adapt to an ever-whitening and restrictive world where once she would have been the decision maker in her home but was now expected to demure to English-speaking men. A woman who carried water, chopped wood, and stoked the fire every morning. She was a woman who brought into the world five daughters and one son and countless generations of grandchildren. I think back to these women and I am honored by their love and their lives in this world. They were women of faith, whether they expressed that in Catholicism or traditional Wolakota beliefs, and they endured far worse than I ever will. And I think back to the promises that they made to each other and the promises that they made to me so that our family, our people, and our nation could continue to live. I think back to them and those promises because we have a shared faith. We have a shared faith and a shared fate. And because of that faith and that fate, I know that I will see them again. And I want to tell them all what I have done with my life and the life that they gave me. Above all in Lakota culture, beyond supernatural or deified practices, we are called to be good relatives because we have been shown time and again how our fate is connected to one another. We are free because we fight for the freedom of others. We are liberated because someone fights to liberate us. We are joyous because we have known sorrow. 
And we are resolute because we have known defeat. We rely on one another. As you heard in today's reading, this concept is one that stands the test of time. When we despair, our energy is depleted, or our well runs dry, we are called to remember that we can and should rely on one another. When one of us celebrates in prosperity, we are called to help others to that prosperity. Because whether it's a God concept, a community of peers, the records of history, whatever you conceive as your accountability, we are encouraged and strengthened by it to uplift one another. In Lakota tradition, we believe that the universe began when the first being, Ia, let its blood flow forth, manifesting all of creation, our understanding of the Big Bang. In all things in creation, Ia's blood lives and binds the universe together. This is our understanding of how we're related to one another and how our rising together is inextricably linked. As I said at the beginning, I'm fortunate to work where I do. Beyond the simple acts of grant making, our foundation truly lives into its values and its priorities. Our board is filled with examples of folks who open their homes to queer youth of color experiencing homelessness who toil tirelessly from sunrise to sunset as social workers, who educate students on subjects like queer history and queer theory, preparing them for the world. Those who tend to the financial health of the community and those who tend to the spiritual and emotional health of allies like yourselves. Hi, Ralph. <laughs> they all come together for um, every year to cast a vision going forward. At the foundation, we also work to deconstruct the premises of systems of supremacy and oppression. What does that mean exactly? Um, I'll tell you um, that my coworker, and as I refer to him, my comrade Tom, um, he's the foundation's development manager. He's a new homeowner, and shortly after um, he'd settled at, into his what I consider cavernous property um, in the Powderhorn neighborhood. Three bedrooms and two baths, who needs that much? Um, he asked me something very shocking. He said, do you think I can deed my property to a local tribal nation after I pay it off? And I kind of sat there and I stammered and I said, well, I, 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 I should think so. Yes, yes, I, I, that, that's entirely possible, yes. And I asked why, and he said, I don't need to keep acquiring property after I die. Why not just give it back to the people who were here in the first place? And it was then that I knew my comrade understood the concept of reparational justice and that I was indeed in the right place and the right time. It doesn't take acts of Congress, rulings from the Supreme Court, or pontif pontifications from on high to strengthen the bonds between us all. Sometimes all it takes are those small, simple acts that demonstrate a joyous commitment to justice that can uplift us all. And um, what I'll do is I'll close with words from one of my favorite poets, Joy Harjo. Um, she's a Muscogee tribal citizen, and this is the eponymous piece um, from her latest book, Conflict Resolutions for Holy Beings. One, set conflict resolution ground rules. Recognize whose lands 
these are on which we stand. Ask the deer, turtle, and the crane. Make sure the spirits of these lands are respected and treated with goodwill. The land is a being who remembers everything. You will have to answer to your children and their children and theirs. The red shimmer of remembering will compel you up the night to walk the perimeter of truth for understanding. As I brushed my hair over the hotel sink to get ready, I heard, by listening, we will understand who we are in this holy realm of words. Do not parade pleased with yourself. You must speak in the language of justice. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you again, Jim. And thank you so much. <laughs>